Amen, amen. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, let me just say, I, I, I love every opportunity um, that I have to uh, be with you all in this space. And uh, it's such an honor and a blessing to have opportunities from time to time to be able to share and to bring the word to you. Um, and I'm excited to do that this morning and uh, to continue in our series through Ephesians. And so uh, some of you may not uh, remember this, but uh, we began all the way back in September. Um, and the, this, uh, this idea of the overarching theme of abundant life um, in, uh, in, for chapel, that Ephesians is weaving into that. And um, uh, this, this, this idea, uh, since it's been a little while since we've been in Ephesians, so it's, we've, we've been through some things, we've gone through some different themes and topics regarding identity, but Ephesians in particular has a lot to say about identity. And so uh, this is, we're just going to continue on where we left off, but just, just to zoom, kind of zoom out before we zoom in, um, we're going to be looking through the passage that Leah just read um, as, we, as, as we continued in worship. And, and that is to simply say that really the, the, the main kind of themes of Ephesians are really the main sub-themes of chapel for this year. That one of identity, of knowing who we are in Christ, of intimacy with God and others, and then impact how we are to live in Christ. And really... Ephesians is all about who we are in Christ because of what God has done for us in Christ. And then how do we actually live that out and walk that out? And uh, that can be difficult, that can be complex, that can be messy. But our aim this year um, is to allow Ephesians to guide and direct us through those themes so that we're living in light and actually experiencing the abundant life that Christ makes available to you and to me. And so, you know, I, I know on a given Wednesday there's a lot of other alternative chapels here. I love the different options and the, the varieties that we have, but um, uh, whether you chose to come this morning to this particular space or whether you just arrived and decided, well, this is the convenient spot, let me tell you this, um, you are here on purpose. Uh, in fact, turn to your neighbor and t tell them, you're here on purpose. You're here on purpose. And I believe... I believe that one of the purposes that God has you in the seat that you're sitting in right now, whether you're attentive, whether you're on your laptop or phone, whether you're taking a nap, one of the purposes God has for you this morning is to wake you up to this reality of life and death. And oh, that was, okay, that works too. All right, I appreciate the, okay, is to wake us up to this reality, this death and life reality that comes through in this, this text. We need this reminder this morning. I need this reminder this morning. And you know, I recently read uh, a story um, about Jeremy uh, Bentham. Probably maybe don't know who he is. If you've maybe taken ethics or philosophy, his name might be familiar. But he lived 1748 to 1832. He was a philosopher, among other things, and considered the founder of the ethical system of utilitarianism which promotes the greatest happiness principle. So in other words, that which is moral is that which brings the most happiness to the greatest amount of people. But in Betham's will, after he passed away, he left a fortune to a London hospital, but with one condition. Bentham's uh, requested, it required that he would be present at every board meeting after his death. So the report goes that for more than 100 
years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed in 17th century garb with a nice little hat, and which sat on his wax head. In the minutes of every board meeting, a line would read the following, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. This was, of course, meant to be a joke from his philosophy because, of course, he never voted because he has been dead since 1832. And the reason why I share this story is the same is true for many today. In fact, it's true for every single one of us if it were not for Christ. We're present, but we're not voting. You see, what this is meant to convey is that there's more than one way to live and there's more than one way to be dead. And this passage in Ephesians brings to us the dire diagnosis of all of humanity and shows us how those who were once dead can be brought to life. And I actually am convinced that many of us, even in our Christian life, are living more according to deadness rather than an aliveness. Maybe that's true of you this morning. And uh, here's, here's the main idea. Uh, here's the main thrust of this passage that we're going to unpack this morning. Let me give it to you on the front end. Here's our roadmap, And it's simply this. It'll come up on screen. Is that God's mercy, love, and grace transforms us from death to life, from enslaved to enthroned, and from condemned to commissioned. Now the reason why none of you upon hearing that statement, didn't fall to your knees in adoration or raise your hands in celebratory gratitude is because you did not grasp the gravity of that contrast of what just was said. And it's my aim to unpack this passage this morning to help us see who we once were apart from Christ so that we would savor all the more of all that we have and all that we are now because of Christ. You see, in between our being dead or being alive, our being enslaved or enthroned, our being condemned or commissioned, lies one divine, authoritative, and supreme but. The only reason that you and I are here today and stand alive, enthroned, and commissioned is because in verse 4, there's a but. But. God. God has graciously intervened and contrasted his unlimited and great love with our helpless and hopeless state. Let me put it this way. Turn to someone next to you and say the Bible has big butts. (laughs) And it does not lie. You students can't deny that when God's grace steps in. Okay, I'm not going to start. Okay. All right. All right. Here's the big... I want us to see this because if it was not for this but, you and I would be dead. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. So I want to give us these contrasting statements. These contrasting statements that this idea is that you and I are far more worse than we can comprehend And God is far greater than we could possibly imagine. And when we begin to taste and see that contrast, we'll begin to savor and taste the sweetness of God's grace like never before. So as we unpack this statement that serves as a summary of this text, embrace the stark contrast so that you and I can more fully experience a fresh work of God in your life. And here's the first one. You were dead, 
Say it with me. But God's mercy has made you alive. Keep in mind here that Paul has just finished at the end of chapter 1 asking and praying that God would give the Ephesians Holy Spirit glasses, enlightened hearts to see how good they have it in Christ. Like you can't even begin to imagine all that you have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings. He's asking and he's praying that they would begin to grasp and see that, and it takes the Holy Spirit's help to do so. But now Paul moves into chapter 2 with giving the Ephesians and thereby giving us a picture of our pre-Christian state of living. And, and to help us to see all of what we have in Christ. He says this, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. No pulse, no breath. Have you ever been in a hospital room where you've heard that noise? That flat line? It's a sobering reality that will penetrate you at the soul level. And you recognize that you see and experience death right before your eyes. And you feel so hopeless and helpless, completely out of control. And you can't do anything to reverse that death. That's what Paul's talking about. There's more than one way to die. There's more than one way to be alive. He's saying that apart from Christ, you were dead. No pulse, no breath, flat line. To quote Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, you were not mostly dead. <laughs> you were totally dead and in need of a miracle that only God could provide. He says this, that you were dead in your trespasses. He contrasts your trespasses and sins, which is simply a shorthand way of saying trespasses are the acts of sin or sins of commission, doing what you ought not to do, and contrasting with sin, which you know we, Paul says later that the wages of sin is what? Death. Talking about sins of omission, not doing what we ought to do. And keep in mind that the very first sin at the garden wasn't one of commission of eating the fruit. It was a sin of omission, of not stepping in and, and recognizing the deception that, that, was, that was coming into Adam and Eve's relationship. Sins of commission, sins of omission, that we were dead. And that we were sinners by nature and choice, walking in the same pattern of our first parents, Adam and Eve. But. But. God. Rich. In mercy. The good news is that our sin met its match. A Savior steps in. God is described here not just as one who is merciful, but one who is rich in mercy. And when the wealth of his mercy intersects with the wretchedness of our sin, the miraculous takes place. We are made alive. You know, Ravi Zacharias is, is, is credited or quoted of saying that Jesus did not come to earth to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. Here is the, this, God's mercy. It, he withholds from us what we deserve, God's just wrath, and instead he places it on Christ. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and died in our place so that you and I could drink the cup of his rich mercy. 
and live. It's in this stark contrast of the darkness of, our, of the deadness that the light of God's mercy shines so remarkably. I remember uh, when I was uh, shopping for engagement rings for Maddie, for my wife, a long, long time ago. And um, I don't know, some of you, maybe you're, in, maybe you're doing this right now. I don't know. So um, here's one thing that you'll notice is that when you're, when you're shopping, you're in a jewelry store and you ask to see a particular ring, when they bring out that ring, they don't just sit it on top of like the glass display case. What do they do? They put a, a dark contrasting cloth or something underneath it so that it rests on top of that and then the brightness and the brilliance of all the light can refract and reflect off that diamond. And you can see all of its beauty and all of its splendor. And all that it was created to be can shine forth. That's essentially what, what Paul is doing here in this passage. Is he's saying, you know what, that, that dark, dire past is contrasted with the mercy, uh, the, the light of God's mercy that now births forth, bursts forth and gives birth to us. Uh, we get, the, it gives, brings that spiritual rebirth. To the, and just in the same way when you see that ring and you're like, whoa. That idea that we should have this sense of awe and reverence when we look at someone coming from death to life, it should cause us to be amazed. We can say, wow, look at what God has done. And I love this idea, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. Uh, I would say this way, I think um, many of us, um, like I said before, I think we're still living in our graves rather than walking in newness of life. Even though maybe we have been made new, even though we have come um, out of the grave, even though we, we have know that we have been forgiven, but we're still walking in deadness of life. And I love this picture and one of the, really the kind of the, the prototype of, of, of the resurrection of Christ in the, in the gospel of John and John 11. We know that his, fr- his friend Lazarus dies and he comes after, you know, four days later, deliberately delays the process so the body begins to decompose. And he reaches the tomb and even though he weeps and he experiences his great compassion and mercy, he looks up and he prays to God and he says, what I'm about to do is so that, the, 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 that, the, that God's glory would be displayed. And, 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 and here's what he says. He says, Lazarus! what? Come out. And I believe that part of this, 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 this word in Ephesians is for us to be able to, to hear our name in place. That we are to come out. And when he comes out, it says that he, he was still wrapped up in his grave clothes. And others, and he said, go take them off. Go take off those grave clothes. How many of you are living in your grave clothes still? And you need to step into the light of Christian community to be reminded of who you are. And to be reminded to actually walk in that newness of life. And so hear your name there. Taylor, come out. Josh, come out. David, come out. Savannah, come out. Julie, come out. Mark, come out. Lauren, come out. Ashley, come out. All of you, come out. I'm just naming students that I know the names of. I don't know where you are in here or if you are in here. But hear God's voice, authoritative voice saying, come out and take off your grave clothes. Praise God that even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. And so because of God's rich mercy, we are no longer dead but alive. Here's the second contrast. That not only when we were once dead, but God's mercy makes us alive. We were once enslaved, but God's love has made you enthroned. 
here's, here's that he says this. He goes on to say, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, in our dead state, Paul says that we are followers of two different forces, the world and the devil. In our, in our disobedience, we have been made captive to serve the course of this world, which is ultimately controlled by Satan. It's not that those who are in this state are completely possessed by Satan, but they, that they live in a world of darkness in which Satan holds the power. In other words, they are enslaved. Jesus would say, those, all those who sin are slave to sin. Paul would write later in 2 Timothy that, that talking about those that have been, um, been made captive and they're held captive by Satan to do his bidding. This idea, do you see that there is literally a battle waging, waging in the heavenly places over the state of your soul? And so he's saying that we were, we were following this idea that we weren't walking in freedom. We were walking in slavery. We were enslaved to do Satan's will. But God, because of God's great love, our enslavement met a more powerful and authoritative master. One who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when our enslavement is contrasted with God's intervening in great love, something remarkable happens. That the sin that once separated you and I from Christ is now separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Because God's love literally unites us with all of who Christ is and what he's done. I love it, it says that, go back in verse, now into verse 5, it says that he made us alive together with Christ, and then he gives this little parenthetical statement, which we'll come, come, return back to you. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in the heavenly places. These three verbs, made alive, raised, and made to sit, refer to the three successive historical events in the saving ministry of Jesus, which are normally called his resurrection, his ascension, and his Session, where he's seated, he's declared, right? He's at the right hand of God. We declare our belief in them when we say things like the Apostles' Creed. On the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. But what's it, what was so amazing about this is that Paul is not writing about Christ, but about us. He is affirming that not, not that God quickened, raised, and seated Christ, but that he quickened, raised, and seated us with Christ. This idea that he says that we're alive together with Christ, that the very life of Christ is ours. We are united with the one who is eternal life, therefore we will never die. Death does not have the last word. We're raised up with Christ, that the same power who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and me and raises us from the dead. We are united with Christ's resurrection power. And it says that we're seated with Christ. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. When it says that we're going from enslaved to enthroned, what, what, this is to say that that did not mean that we are divine or an equal status with Christ. We know that Jesus alone is king, right? I'm so glad Kanye West agrees with that and is promoting that. Jesus is king. But what this does mean is that we are seated with Christ. And yet where is Christ? Well, from the section early, we know that he's been seated at the right hand of God, above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. So in a sense, we are literally seated with Christ on his throne, not as equals, but as co-heirs. All that Christ has is ours. So I love that this idea, Paul uses this compound word 
and, 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 and is it transliterated into English? It's S-Y-N. From it, we get the word, and in English, it translates with. So that idea that alive together with Christ, that raised with Christ, seated with Christ. We get the word uh, sync, right? And we get that from technology, that, that when you bring the two de- devices together, that they're synced together. Literally, the idea here is that we have been synced with the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the, and the session of Christ. So that's why we're involved when he comes back again in his second coming. And, I, and this, this idea, um, I want to ask us this. What's, what's stressing you out right now, making you worried or anxious? Everything, okay? I want to ask this, where is Jesus and what is he doing about it? Is he up in heaven pacing around? Like, oh no, what's going on? Like everything, okay, my, like my children are stressed. They got this going on. They got anticipating his next move. No, no, no. He's sitting down. He's at a place of rest. That doesn't mean he's not active, but he's a place of rest. And the best thing to do in times of trouble, anxiety, uh, doubt, fear, is to sit. To literally sit down and be reminded of the fact that where you are, of where you are, you are seated with Christ. You know, a little book uh, called Sit, Walk, Stand, written by um, a, a Christian author and pastor, Watchman Nee, it, it follows the same course. He, he breaks down Ephesians as sit, walk, stand. And, uh, and so he, he says this idea for sitting. What's this reality that we need to sit in? He says this, Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. The Christian life apart, uh, life from start to finish is based upon this principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus. He says this, sitting is an attitude of rest. We only advance in the Christian life because we, lean for, we, we learn first of all to sit down. And to sit down it means simply to rest our whole weight, our load, ourselves, our future, everything upon the Lord. We let him bear the responsibility and, and allow him to care. And, and, and we cease trying to carry it all by ourselves. So because of God's great love... We are no longer enslaved but enthroned, seated with the Lord, which means that we have the authority. Listen, you have the authority to rest. We have one more contrast. And all of these deserve a whole message in and of themselves, but here's, here's, this, here's the last contrast. You were condemned, but God's grace has made you commissioned. You were condemned, but God's grace has made you commissioned. So he goes on to say the purpose of why he's doing what he's doing. He says that um, all of this happens, he says, so that in verse 7, in the coming ages, look at this, he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do this saving work? Why did he raise us from, from death to life? Why did he make us from enslaved to enthroned? It's so that we could be recipients from the overflowing, never-ending fountain of his grace for all of eternity. That we actually just, just to sit and let that wash over us. But that's why he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now what this is not saying, this is not a transaction. We bring faith, God brings grace, then salvation. Both grace and faith are God's gift to us. That requires that salvation. Here's the key then. He says it's not a result of works, it's a gift of God, right? No one can boast. But as we boast in God's grace, this salvation is not just about where we go to heaven when we die. 
that's cheating. That's that's treating God like a cosmic vending machine of getting the get out of hell free card. It's it's, it's saying, okay, my eternity, my future is secure. I can live life however I want. No, this type of grace comes with the responsibility. Your work doesn't get you there, but now you are saved from work in order to work. Because did you ever notice when you come to Christ, if all your purpose was this is to go to heaven, was why didn't God just take us there right away? Why are you sitting in the seats you're sitting in right now? Why are you here at this university? You're here now because of verse 10. Because it says, for we are his, what? Workmanship. Creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, there's a difference between being saved from something, the wrath of God, which is true, and difference between being saved for something. That we have a mission, we have a purpose. That that salvation brings us into God's family, but now we're a part of God's mission. So this means that we get, you and I get to wake up every single day with this fresh anticipation and excitement and say, God, what do you have in store for me today? What do you have in store for me today? Open my eyes and help me see. And notice here that the emphasis in our English translations, it says, for we are his workmanship. The we is mentioned first before the his. In the Greek, his is first. And whenever something shows up first in a sentence, that's meant to be there for emphasis. So in other words, what's being emphasized here is not our work and our doing, but what's emphasized here is God's work and God's doing. But yet he partners with us. We get to partner with him in this work. So God is prepared beforehand that we, that you and I, and notice, notice here that we have a full circle loop. Let me, this is really powerful. Paul here gives the bookends. The bookends, notice verse 2, that we were dead in our sins in which we once walked. We're following the course of this world. We are carrying out the desires of the body and mind. But now that we've been recreated, we're carrying out God's work. We're carrying out the desires that are on his heart and mind. And you see this comes full circle here. We see the full transformation, the contrast here between our purpose and our motive for living. Here's what I want to do as we close. Would you, would you stand with me? I want to, I want to invite us to just to engage for one minute in prayer. In our closing minute, simply ask the Lord to say, God, where, what's dead in my life that I need you to raise again? What's dead in my life that I need you to raise again? Ask him as well, what am I being, what sin am I being enslaved to that I need to recognize that I've been enthroned, that I have authority over it in the name of Jesus? What's dead that you need to be, needs to be made alive in your life? What sin are you enslaved to that you need to recognize that I need to sit down and walk in the authority that I have because I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places? And then lastly, What good works is God preparing for you today to ask him to open your eyes in order to see that so that you can walk in them? So God, we praise you that because of your mercy, love, and grace, you have transformed us from death to life, from enslaved to enthroned, and from condemned to commissioned. May this be so in each of our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, amen.